North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. I'd just like to see ultimately denuclearization. Uh, I have no pressing time schedule. As long as there's no testing, I'm in no rush. If there's testing, that's another deal. It has a complex history and it has become the United States' top national security priority. I think that the only one setting high expectations is probably the media because they're looking for reasons to attack this president. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. In this episode, things heat up as negotiators prepare for the second Trump-Kim summit in Hanoi. And we welcome a special guest, Dr. Stephen Norper, who's the senior director of the Korea Society and a senior advisor to the United Nations Northeast Asia Cooperation Program. Dr. Norper joins me and CSIS Korea Chair Victor Cha to discuss the fate of the second summit. Dr. Cha, Dr. Norper, why don't we start with the fact that this week, President Trump said that he's in no rush to denuclearize. What, what did he mean by that? And what do you think he meant in terms of the negotiations that are upcoming in Hanoi? Dr. Norper, do you want to start? Sure, certainly. I think one of the things it does is uh, cause a bit of concern in terms of suggesting to the North Koreans that the expectation on denuclearization has somehow been uh, downsized. Uh, what it probably does more generally is lower expectations for those watching the summit. Expectations have been quite high. And so this is one way uh, that it seems to have been checked. So it's interesting because um, I certainly understand why it's not good in terms of the negotiation because we want to keep the North Korean feet to the fire. But at the same time, it's kind of a dose of reality. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, Trump was, you know, saying, oh, yeah, the threat's gone and, you know, everything's OK. And for him to sort of say, well, there's no timeline you know, this can take as long as it needs to, as long as they're not testing, is almost acknowledging what the experts have been saying, which is that this program is so far advanced now right. that even if the North Koreans were 100 percent compliant, it would still take 10 years to completely denuclearize the program. But the problem is we don't know if it's because he understands that sort of expert scientific advice or it's because he feels as though he doesn't want to he doesn't want people to already negate the importance of his summit by saying, oh, you can't get something within the next two years. So you're thinking the president hasn't read cover to cover Sig Hecker's report. Yeah, for some reason, I just don't think that between the uh, all the hours of executive time is, are being devoted to either reading Sig Heckard's report or reading Beyond Parallel reports. Yeah, yeah. there you go. When, when Fox and Friends is competing. Right. Along the line of what Victor's saying, it also might be a suggestion that he's getting some good advice, that the denuclearization process is complex, that it will take time. Yeah. And that this is, as Victor has said, a reality check. And so that that that's good. Uh, and it's probably more true to the, the science of the reality than the other uh, the other way of going. Uh, but I do I do think it's a way that they're conveying that we should somehow lower expectations for the final result. I worry about other issues, uh, about the nonproliferation regime and, and the example that it sets internationally. But clearly, the president wants to declare it a victory. So by lowering expectations, uh, it means pretty much anything North Korea brings to the table will be deemed a success. Yeah. You know, it could very well be that the initial idea was to try to get something within two years which effectively means really within one year, since next year it's going to be crazy time with the election and campaigning. 
Um, so really within one year. Um, but yet the experts say at least 10 years. So even if he came out of Hanoi with a statement saying, oh yeah, the North Koreans are going to do this within 24 months, everybody would know it's fake, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody would know it's fake because that's not what the experts say. And clearly he's trying to fit it into uh, an election timeline. Um, and physically it's impossible to do it within 24 months. So it could be that he's just decided to walk back because there is he doesn't see a way to win on this particular point. You know, he's all about winning, right? Yeah. He doesn't see a way to win on this particular point. And, and this is not going to be something he can really campaign on. He might be able to say he's had success in bringing Kim to the table, right. but he's not going to be able to walk away and say he's had success in really getting anywhere far down the process. Right, right. Well, what he'll claim as a success is what he claimed in that tweet, which is the missiles aren't flying. Yeah. And so as long as there's no testing, that seems to be the, the benchmark by which he's able to claim success. And isn't that a form of success? It is. I mean, clearly it is. The testing moratorium is something we shouldn't overlook. Uh, it's not the same thing in any way, shape, or form as denuclearization. But a testing moratorium, partial denuclearization, arms control, those have all entered the vernacular in the last few weeks. So the thing about he has tweeted a number of times that, hey, the North hasn't tested in 15 months, right, because of me. Right. They haven't tested in 15 months, no nuclear tests, no missile tests. And that is factually accurate. There have not been missile tests or nuclear tests in 15 months. But to take credit for it, I'm not really sure about that. Because, again, not to plug our studies, but we did do a study that looked at North Korean testing patterns when the United States is in negotiations with North Korea. And there's a clear pattern, which is when we are sitting at the table with them, they do not test. Right. doesn't matter who the president is. They do not test. So, yes, they've stopped testing. Um, because we're in negotiations with them. And so Trump really can't take credit for that one. So the only difference here is, is he's talking one-to-one -one with Kim versus in the past several administrations, we've talked at a working level. Right. Six-party talks or agreed yep. framework talks. But basically, whenever we've been talking to them, they've been careful about this. There's been, I think the data shows there's been two instances um, in, again, 30 years. So the two exceptions really prove the rule. He likes to take credit for that. And I think Steve and I were all happy that they're not testing, but uh, he doesn't deserve credit for that. Right. The other angle to that is that all roads now have gone through Seoul. And so Moon Jae-in clearly sees this as part of a South Korean effort. He has suggested just this week that the economic leveraging is designed to help with the denuclearization process. So they're taking a, a longer view. And that's reflected in, in Trump's comments, which may be aimed more at a domestic audience, especially given the politics next year. But, uh, but clearly the, the South Koreans see it as a leverage point as well. Well, what kind of credit does President Moon deserve? I think quite a bit in the sense that he steadied the rudder. The Singapore summit probably wouldn't have happened. Trump was backing off it. And the two leaders met, uh, and rather swiftly, tw within 24 hours, uh, Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un. So it shows you that they're adept at that. And then in July, August, there was a real slowdown and, and Moon Jae-in uh, stepped up and, and both made an international appeal at the United Nations uh, among experts in, in New York. And so he was trying to, to get that back uh, on track. And, and by the end of the year, that had happened. Uh, and, and so 
some credit should be given the South Koreans for having maintained the, the momentum here. Uh, however, as uh, we've mentioned political seasons and whatnot, that's that's something where Moon Jae-in is going to have to see gains, and the North Koreans know that. They know as long as they don't test, they give Trump an ability to claim a certain level of victory, and as long as they don't test, they create political space for Moon Jae-in to navigate a very complicated process where he faces a lot of internal opposition. I agree with Steve. I mean, I think, you know, look, in 2017, he was he was sitting there thinking he's going to get entrapped in a war between the United States and North Korea, right? And and so uh, they worked very hard to try to get the diplomacy going. You know, if not for Moon's efforts and the Winter Olympics, which they used as a vehicle, you know, who knows where we'd be right now? We could be in, you know, in a very bad place. So yeah, he certainly did deserve credit for that. But yeah, the terrain that he is navigating now is extremely complicated, given, you know, what he's trying to do with North Korea, um, um, you know, how he's trying to bring Trump into in uh, into this uh, negotiation. Um, the absence of a relationship with Japan, right? And then the very complex with relationship with China after the THAAD controversy. Um, so, um, the THAAD missile THAAD, controversy. Yeah, THAAD missile defense controversy. So he's playing with a very full and complicated deck of cards um, and certainly deserves, uh, deserves some credit. However, at the same time, there is moving a process forward because you believe it can get you to a certain place. And there's moving a process forward for the sake of the process, right? And so regardless of what happens is the next time, it goes well or it goes poorly, there's going to be a fourth North-South Summit, inter-Korean summit. And, and so if it goes badly, then that's even more pressure on Moon to try to produce results when he meets with Kim that Trump could not produce. Otherwise, it's just process for process's sake. Right. And if it goes well, you may well see uh, this promised visit to Seoul or at the very least some sort of summit meeting between uh, Moon and Kim. And then you'll also see movement on other fronts. Uh, the Speaker of the National Assembly has floated the idea of an interparliamentary meeting, uh, an eventual union or, or some sort of process of cooperation. So there will be more thrust for the inter-Korean process. Now, some experts would say that President Trump is giving Kim too much by giving him this second summit that could have accomplished just the same with having another working level summit, something like that. What, what do you all think about Is he giving him too much here? It's a good question. I mean, I think that summits are very, you know, summits with the American president are very special Big things. Big deal. Especially if you're an outcast country, right? It's the ultimate legitimizer. Right? right. This is a country that was ostracized from the whole world until a couple of years ago. Right. So in that sense, I think these meetings probably mean more to the North Korean leadership than they do to the American leadership. And so in that sense, some might say, you know, we're just sitting at the table with them. But sitting at the table with them is actually a big deal for the North Koreans. It's a huge deal. And I think that's fine as long as we're making progress, as long as we're actually chipping away at their nuclear program, uh, not with just the same old steps, but with new steps. But thus far, we haven't seen that. Right. And so that is the big concern going into Hanoi, that if we come out of this and the North Koreans are basically putting on the table things that they don't need anymore or things that they've sold to us in the past, like um, 
IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors, back in the Yongbyon plutonium nuclear complex, you know, that's really not worth the ticket. I mean, if I'm betting the over-under, I'm betting the under here that we get the under. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that I feel like the administration, I don't know if this is a a shrewd communication strategy, but I feel like in the last 48 hours, they have been trying to downplay expectations Mm -hmm. because they, you know, maybe they have some surprise coming up. I don't know. But the other element of this is if we get very little in Hanoi, it's fine as long as we don't give up too much. Right. Right. And so that is the other equation here is that the North Koreans may give us uh, very little, but Trump may impulsively give too much. And, you know, ultimately, it, right for Trump, it's great for ratings. And you could say that for Kim, too. I mean, they like the spectacle of it. But as Victor's noted, you know, we need we need to see more substantial progress. And they, they know that in the sense that they can't walk away the way they did from Singapore without some form of, of harder commitments. Even if they declare it a success, they know that they face a skeptical uh, international community that, that wants to see uh, something on the table. So I think that with the signaling we've seen from the South Korean foreign minister, from the U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, uh, enough has been communicated that, that there will be, as they've called it, deliverables. And so they'll, they'll deem that enough of a success. What I think your question also begs is, is the broader specter of concerns that haven't been put on the table, human rights, uh, and humanitarian affairs among them. That's, and that's so been nowhere. they are going to have to get to a more complex agenda in time. And we shouldn't lose sight that there's a broader agenda beyond, uh, missiles and nukes as important as they are. You mentioned ratings. I mean, this this has the feel of a professional wrestling match. This is like steel cage match two, and it's hyped up, you know, to to the extreme. It's in Hanoi. This, I mean, this is this is mm. like really made for TV stuff. Yeah, and that's exactly the way he wants it, right? You know, it's good that Victor has mentioned the Hanoi part because the North Koreans uh, have couched this in the form of a state visit that precedes the sit-down with Trump. And there'll be some exchange with uh, Vietnamese and North Korean officials. The North Koreans will be shown uh, industrial zone, and, and that involves uh, Samsung, uh, among others. So there may be some lessons learned on the developmental side, and, and there's a section that is less attractive for international media to coverage, but to cover. But there, there may be something there that that we need to be thinking about. And Vietnam was clearly selected. Uh, by both sides for potential as an example for North Korea going forward. Right. So this is another feather in his cap, right? I mean, because of because of these meetings with Trump, he's gotten you know he's gotten to go to Singapore, right? And he's he's done th- what three meetings with the Chinese president, three meetings with the South Korean president, now a state visit, right? In Vietnam, a state a state visit. So that I mean that's a really good point. I, I don't know. I he's going to eat well in Vietnam. He's going to eat well, and and yeah. I don't know how it, it may be in in North Korea. This is being played as a state visit to Vietnam, as Steve said. Oh, I believe and, it is. And then yeah. a follow on meeting with Trump, but it's the state visit to Vietnam. Yeah. that's getting the attention. This is a big deal for him. Our guys are downplaying it. There's there's some talk this week of whether there's a common understanding of what denuclearization actually means. Are we going to be able to get to that with the two of them? I think of all the pre, you know, the week before the trip and all of the briefings that have been that are being done around town now 
by the administration. That is actually the piece that worries me the most, is that they are talking now about approaching and understanding of a common understanding of denuclearization. Right. I mean, that is probably the most ominous sign because if you remember after Singapore, there there wasn't a discussion, right? Trump had said, you know, the nuclear threat is over. They're going to give up all their weapons. They know exactly, we and they know exactly what we mean by that. Uh, but now we're, you know, at the working level, they're talking about trying to, you know, get a common understanding of what, what denuclearization means. That, you know, that is really not a good sign, and it shows that something that we all knew, which is that North Korea isn't really willing to part with their programs. But I think at some point, because of the president's confidence, uh, because of all his talk about secret channels, because there were secret channels, you know, with involving the CIA and others that, you know, I think maybe there was a hope that there was something in there that we weren't seeing. Trump kept saying, well, we've got these channels that are not open to the public and you have no idea what's going on inside those things. So, you know, maybe some of us hoped that that might, that there actually might be some there there. But when they come out a week before the summit and say, yeah, we're trying to get a common understanding of what denuclearization means, that's bad. That's not good. Yeah, I was frankly surprised because I think the most they're going to get is to agree to disagree, right? That there are very different definitions. And so Bridgie knows is, is near impossible. Uh, but, but maybe somewhere in there is the intention that they'll move to some level of, of arms control talks or confidence building measures or other things over time. Uh, but to hope for a common definition on this at this point, uh, the North Koreans know exactly what the American definition is, and they have expressed opinions, uh, you know, to an opposite definition that includes the entire peninsula and impacts the American nuclear umbrella and, and affects the USROK alliance, and, and that's all part of their strategy. We know what one another's strategies are. There are no secrets here, and there'll be differences, but those differences will remain. So what's the best success that you all think we can hope for coming out of this second cage match? I mean, summit. <laughs> I actually think that the North Koreans uh, may well give some sort of partial declaration uh, and maybe suggest uh, in private, if not in public, uh, to a verification regime. We've already seen that there has been talk of easing sanctions. The president has, has floated that, uh, that there has been a talk that there's no rush on denuclearization so that there's no need to ascribe to a timeline. And we've seen mention of normalization of relations and the opening of liaison offices. Uh, those all give the president, in his mind, reason to declare victory. Uh, you may see a lean-in on the end-of-war statement, but I suspect that Moon Jae-in would like to keep that for a grander setting with himself, Xi Jinping, Donald Trump, and Kim Jong-un. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, when you deal with North Korea, it's not, it's not what's the best outcome, it's what's the least worst outcome. Right. And there, you know, I think all those things that Steve mentioned, they could be in play. And, you know, I think, you know, if they are, they are. Whatever they negotiate, they negotiate. The main thing for me is that we do no harm, that the president does no harm in terms of eroding our alliance our alliance assets, you know, talking about troops or, or talking about indefinitely suspending exercises uh, or talking about, you know, no more military sales to South Korea, things of that nature. That would be the worst outcome. Speaking about exercises, we haven't done an exercise in over a year now, right? So are we going to continue not doing exercises? So it is problematic because, again, 
One of the objectives of Singapore is peace on the Korean Peninsula. There has been peace on the Korean Peninsula because of deterrence, because of conventional deterrence, because the United States and the ROC ensure that through their exercises, North Korea cannot possibly calculate that they could win a war. Right? Um, but if we continue not to have exercises, there are portions of the exercise they can do in other places. Like they can do portions mm -hmm. of it in Cobra Gold, you know, the Southeast Asia. But there are parts of the exercise that you cannot do anywhere but on the peninsula. And everybody that I've talked to has said that, yeah, basically when you get to a year with no exercising, you're really eroding capability and readiness. And so, you know, so this is problematic. I mean, if the, if the president again says, yeah, we're suspending the next major exercise, which is, which is supposed to be in this time frame, February to April, um, then, you know, either the Pentagon really has to think of ways to work around this and maintain readiness. Um, uh, otherwise, we're just eroding deterrence. And again, the problem is that the North Koreans could miscalculate. They could think we're not ready, so maybe they feel more comfortable being tougher. You know, there were some very small-scale exercises among Marine divisions, and you heard the North Koreans raise their voice, but not too loudly. So there may be a threshold uh, that allows for, for some activity. And then this point that Victor has mentioned about uh, taking exercises offshore, that that may suffice uh, for, for some of the larger scale things for now. But former Defense Secretary Mattis raised that very issue that, that over, you know, after a year period, you begin to have uh, some attrition and efficacy, and both uh, General Brooks and and now General Abrams have have signaled that clearly there's there's to be an expected fall off, uh, however slight in terms of readiness. But the bigger strategic calculation is what Victor points out that North Korea knows the score, uh, and the administration may find at least some partial suspensions over the year to continue as a valuable negotiating tactic. And it seems to have worked so far. It, it also allows the Americans to say, well, okay, so you have agreed to a testing moratorium on missiles and nukes. You've made these other moves on, on Sohei, on, on the uh, on on the on the nuclear facility closure. Uh, at least this is a, something that they can point to and say, well, we, we have drawn down a bit. But at some point, it'll have to be revisited. And again, not compromising the USROK alliance is a major priority. The other thing we should also mention is that we're talking about suspending USROK exercise. We've suspended them, and we're talking about suspending them again. As far as I know, the North Koreans are not suspending their exercises. Right. Right. Their exercises are going. with The winter training exercise, right, Steve, went forward. Um, so mm -hmm. I think you know they're they're not suspending exercises. They're they're not testing anymore, but they are still doing. Oh, military they're still exercising, exercising, and they're producing weapons. Right, they continue to produce mm -hmm. weapons capabilities. And as you pointed out in your report, Victor, scores of bases that are missile bases that are undeclared. Yeah, undeclared missile bases that don't appear to be part of a negotiation. It would be fantastic next week if the administration emerged and said, yeah, we're also looking at those bases too. I would be happy to say that I was wrong. Um, but uh, but as far as I know, I can tell the, these are not part of negotiations. And, and if those remain intact, those are still real threats to Americans in Korea and Japan. Uh, Americans potentially in Guam as far as Hawaii and Alaska, including, and then of course, you know, um, uh, Koreans and Japanese. Gentlemen, a lot to think about here. Until next time on The Impossible State. 
If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.